I'm going to be reading Exodus 14, 1 to 31. Why, is that really emotional? (laughs) So if I make some mistakes, that's why. I know that there's some interesting names in here, uh, which I am deliberately going to pronounce incorrectly. So just circle those and you can come and tell me afterwards and I'll see whether you got it right. There's a surprise. Okay. So then the Lord said to Moses, all the Israelites, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Piharoth between Migdol and the sea. They are to camp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over them all. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Piharoth, opposite Baal Zephron. As Pharaoh approached the Israelites, sorry, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them and they were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out into Egypt, out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm and you will see the deliverance. Wow. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you need not be. Uh, you only need to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, "Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide the waters, that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry land. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army." through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who had been travelling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved in front, from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all the night 
the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it to dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last night, the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against, the, against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry land with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day... The Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore and when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses his servant. Great. Well, let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your work for your people throughout history. We thank you for your saving of your people from the Egyptians through the Red Sea. We thank you so much for your salvation that comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that as we again turn to the scriptures and continue to hear them, uh, that you'd help us to keep growing in our knowledge, in our obedience, in our joy, in our faith. Let me pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ah, well, that was, uh, it's great to be with you and it's very exciting to be here for those um, affirmations. They do, they do actually bring a tear to my eye. It was very embarrassing for me when I used to be a church pastor because we couldn't have a baptism or a wedding or an affirmation or anything like that without me being a bit wobbly. Um, but it's very, very exciting what God does among his people. Uh, so wonderful to be here to share that with you. Uh, We've just heard read from Exodus 14, and again, it's just continuing straight on from where we have been. Uh, We had been, of course, with uh, Israel leaving Egypt. Uh, When they've left Egypt, the first thing God says is, let's set some things in place so you remember your deliverance. Uh, And that was followed by uh, God guiding them by this pillar of fire and cloud uh, as they head off on their journey. And now we come to a story which I think is pretty uh, famous Uh, Even if you're not a Christian, you probably know this story. This has entered into lots of popular culture uh, and it's a story that's well told because it's so spectacular. Um, And so there's a familiarity about this, this story of uh, Egypt crossing through the Red Sea, taking, uh, sorry, of of Israel crossing through the Red Sea, the whole nation going through this this tunnel of water uh, and the Egyptians following and the waters closing in around them. But as I've been looking again at this part of the scriptures, something has struck me about it 
that doesn't maybe leap out when you first read it. And it's a question about why on earth did this happen at all? Why, Why are Israel in this situation? Why do we have this need for them to be delivered again? Now, you look at it and you think, well, that's obvious. This is part of their exodus, part of their salvation. This is how they got away. But no, that doesn't quite seem right. Because you go back to the end of chapter 12 uh, and the very end of chapter 12, which is just before we started this morning, on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. Egypt, uh, Israel has already made the move. And as you remember back to the chapters that came earlier, uh, this was the decisive kind of moment after this back and forth between Pharaoh and Moses, let my people go, no, let my people go, no, let my people go, okay, they can go, and they go, and it's done, and now they're out. Uh, So you get to chapter 13, and the deliverance seems sorted. Pharaoh's not pursuing them, they've been released. Why are we suddenly back in this situation? where they're being pursued again and need to be saved again. It seems kind of strange. Remember uh, when we looked just at uh, the second half of chapter 13, we saw when Pharaoh let the people go, this is chapter 13 verse 17, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was the shortest. For God said if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people round by the desert road towards the Red Sea. God didn't take them the quickest and most direct and straightforward way out. He took them this odd way by the Red Sea. And we see a similar thing here uh, when we get to verse, uh, chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pihahiroth between Migdol and the sea. They had a camp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think... The Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. Uh, That is, God says to Moses, put the brakes on, go back in a different direction and camp by the sea. That's a crazy thing to do. Why is it a crazy thing to do? Because if you stop there, you're going to be boxed in, you're going to be trapped. You're in a place where there's no escape. Go there. And when that happens, Pharaoh's going to hear and he says, these guys are nuts. They're not actually fleeing. They're wandering aimlessly and they've walked themselves into a corner. Well, this is ridiculous. Uh, They're not getting away at all. And now that I think about it, I'm not going to let them. Same thing in uh, verses 5 to 9, if we we keep going. Uh, When the king of Egypt was turned, the people had fled. Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind about them and said, What have we done? Uh, We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and he took his army uh, with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt uh, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses, chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them and they camped by the sea near Pihahiroth opposite Baal-Zephon. So Pharaoh comes out. God has taken his people actually to a strategically foolish place. They could have gone out more quickly, but no, now they're back in, uh, back in a tight spot. Pharaoh hears about it. His heart is hardened again. There's no natural escape route, and he goes out after them once more with his armies. Why did God do this? Why did God do this? What's the 
point of this whole incident? What's the point of this? You can see that uh, the Israelites are crying out to Moses in their confusion. Uh, Were there enough graves for us? Leave us alone. Was it because there weren't graves in Egypt you brought us to die in the desert? Didn't we say, leave us, let us stay serving the Egyptians? They, they kind of look, this is terrible. It wasn't good in Egypt, but frankly, it's better than this disaster that you've now engineered for us. What's going on? Well, obviously, uh, this is kind of not what we often think about when we come to this text. And the answer to this question, I think, is not what we often think about either. But it's right here for us as well. Why did God bring them out? Why did God put them in a compromised position? Their deliverance seemed complete. Why bring fresh trouble? Well, it follows on from something we were saying last time. And if we come back to the text, we'll see the answer there. Verse 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself. Verses 17 and 18. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go after them and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and his army. Uh, Verse 18. The Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariot and his horsemen. Three times in the passage we're told why this is happening. This is not in the first instance uh, part of the necessary steps of their deliverance. This is a kind of... uh, something that's taken them out of the way of that for one purpose. And the purpose is that God might gain more glory for himself. That God might gain more glory for himself. Now, I think that's actually quite profound. It's quite profound. When you start thinking that God's people can be in tight situations, risky situations, dangerous situations... Because God's purpose is to bring more glory to himself. And that's what we see here. God's purpose is to bring glory for himself. Now, that kind of is is the answer, but then it starts raising all these other questions. You think, hang on a sec, hang on a sec. Doesn't God already have all the glory? Like, is he lacking in glory? Does he need a kind of glory top up? Not not quite as, as much glory as I want? And how does this gain glory for God anyway? Like, You put your people in a dangerous situation. Well, that brings glory to you. How does that bring glory to you? Well, I think the best way to to, to come to the answer to that is to to picture what actually happened. Now, uh, picture the scene. The scene we see really mapped out uh, from verses 15 through to 28. Uh, and, And it's a remarkable scene. We have Israel, as it were, with... The the Pharaoh's army on one side and the sea behind them. There's nowhere to go. And God says to Moses, verse 16, raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Now, if you know anything about the um, imagery of the sea in the Bible, you know that the sea is the image of chaos, disorder, danger, and even death. Uh, And so in the creation, what do we see God do? Well, God separates the waters to above and below and carves out a space in between the waters above and the waters below where people can live. And then in the creation, what does God do? He pushes the waters aside so that there's a space for people to live and he calls that land. 
Water is uninhabitable, but then there's, there's this, uh, the, the, the atmosphere, if you like, and there's land. And it's the same thing going on here. There's sea. There's no life for you if you walk into that, but God does the same thing. He carves out a space for his people to live despite the fact that it had looked like chaos and danger and death and destruction. By the way, when you get to the end of the Bible, to Revelation, one of the closing scenes of the book of Revelation, uh, when you're in the throne room and the new Jerusalem, what do you see? There's no more sea. That statement is made, the sea is gone. It's not just that God has carved out a space for people, but now all that danger and chaos and destruction is, is completely removed. So here we have the same thing. God is going to carve out this space, but the way he does it is quite stunning. No one was there for the creation in the book of Genesis, chapter 1. But Moses and the whole nation is here, and the Egyptians are here too. And Moses is called to raise out your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water. And then the angel of God, who'd been travelling in front of Israel's army... This is at verse 19. Withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Now, this in itself is just stunning. Imagine this pillar of fire and smoke that's been travelling with you, suddenly moving around going behind you and coming between you and the enemy, standing there as a blockade. Not only that, but it it casts darkness back on them as they're in shadow, as it were, and light onto you. Again, this takes us back to the creation story, doesn't it? Let there be light. And we know in the creation story that God makes day and night. There's light that comes out of darkness and we, if you like, live in the days and go to ground in the night. Live in the days and go to ground in the night. And again, jump to the end of the Bible, Revelation 20, uh, 21, 22. There is no sun or moon because the Lord himself is their light. It's constantly light. But here's another example of God's light coming in his people while those who are opposed to him are in darkness. Now, I just think, if you're the Egyptian army at this point, are you really thinking, we've got a chance here? You know, the sea is parting. There's this column in front of us casting darkness and us light on them. The angel of the Lord's up there and you think, yeah, I reckon we'll get these guys. I don't quite know why they felt that they had a smart plan at this stage, but it's a stunning scene. So you have this column between Israel and Egypt, and then Moses does what the Lord instructs, stretch out his hand over the sea, and there's a strong wind through the night that pushes back the sea, and the waters are divided, and the Israelites walk through and this is hundreds of thousands of people, mind you. They walk through on dry land with a wall of water on their left and a wall of water on their right. You might have seen something like the Disney cartoons or recreations of this, and we don't actually know what it looked like, but you can imagine this is stunning. Walking through the ocean with walls of water on either side, heading through, through the chaos, through uh, all the, 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 the death and the evil, and heading in God's grace and God's power to salvation. Remarkable. The Egyptians, verse 23, pursued them. They went into this 
uh, cavern as well. Followed them into the sea. And then during the last watch of the night, verse 24, the Lord now looks down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw them into confusion. I'm not sure what happens here, but something means that they're now not so sure of what's going on. Maybe they've lost their way, can't see their letter, who knows what it is. The wheels of their chariots get jammed, verse 25, and the Egyptians suddenly realise, too late, uh-oh, we're in big trouble here. We're in the middle of like walls of the sea and our chariots are stuck and I think actually God's on their side. This is not going to end well. The Lord is fighting for the Israelites. They realise too late. And the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so the Lord may flow back over the Egyptians, their chariots and horsemen, which Moses does and is exactly what happens. The sea returns and they're swept into the sea. The water flows back, covers the chariots and the horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh uh, had followed the Israelites into the sea and not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through on dry ground with a wall of water on their left and on their right. It's a remarkable scene. It's a remarkable scene. And it's a demonstration of the incredible power of God and the trustworthiness of God and the fact that God does it all. God does the whole lot. Back in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. You just hang around. It'll be fine. God will do everything. And he does. In this remarkable display of power, the Egyptians who they'd been freed from and were a a threat that was retreating into the distance now are wiped out and can never threaten them again. They don't exist anymore. But again, this is not only about their salvation. This is not only about their salvation. This is about more glory going to God. And I think more glory goes to God because the people have seen this. They've seen the plagues. They've seen God's deliverance. But now they've seen a jaw-dropping, eye-opening miracle one that must be so amazing to have beheld and their response to that will be to bring more glory to God and the nations when they hear their response will be to bring glory to God or it should be when you get to verse 31 this is what happens the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians and the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him And in his servant Moses. Part of the way that glory comes to the Lord is by his people fearing him. Part of the way that glory comes to the Lord is by his people trusting him. The fear of the Lord, the trust of the Lord brings glory to the Lord. Now, it's not that God has become more glorious than he was before. It's not like he was a semi-glorious God and now he's a more glorious God. But more glory is given to him. He is ascribed glory. Now his name, his work, his character are burned deeper into the hearts of his people. Uh, Now those things more and more are issued from their mouths with words of praise. Now the glory of the Lord just becomes even more something that they want to ascribe. I think a good uh, kind of illustration of this is imagine imagine a, a football grand final. There are two teams who take the pitch. Uh... The game is played, it's hard fought. 
after the long season and, and all the, that goes on with that, one team wins. Fantastic. But when you have that, what happens afterwards? Afterwards, the team receives glory. There's streamers in the team's colours. There's their music that gets played out, bad as it is. Uh, they get the front page of the newspaper. They get on the news. Uh, people get jerseys that say premiers this year and all that sort of stuff. Glory is ascribed to them. Now, if there was no glory ascribed to them, they still would have won. Like, they still would be the best team. You imagine if, if they won, they, they took the trophy uh, and just went home and no one mentioned it. And there was not a word. And afterwards, the game was played and everyone just quietly left and that was it. They'd still be the best. They'd still be the winners. Their names would still go down in the books. But they wouldn't be receiving the glory. And that's what's going on here. God's still God. He's still the greatest. He's still the the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. But when great victories like this occur, more glory goes to him. More praise, more shouting, more rejoicing, more thanksgiving. That's the idea. That's the picture that's going on here. This whole incident of the Red Sea crossing is so that glory is ascribed to the Lord. The intended result is more people glorify him. Again, as we said earlier, we often think that God's purposes are all about us. This is just sometimes the way that we get things a little wrong. We think God's purposes are all about us. God's purpose is to save us from our sins. God is all about my salvation. Jesus died on the cross for my sake. We just can tend to push it towards being all about us. And it's true. So much of what God does is for us. He loves his people. He's got plans for his people. They're his children. He's their father. There's a great deal that is to do with us. But actually, it's good to keep reminding ourselves that what's more important than our salvation even is God's glory. In fact, why are we saved? Why are we saved? What is the purpose of us being saved? I take it as I read through the Bible, the main purpose in us being saved is not so that we can have saved lives and enjoy our trouble-free, saved lives, going about doing whatever it is we're doing with the security that uh, we won't face judgment and we've got an eternal home. I don't think that's the purpose of our salvation. The purpose of our salvation is that we might become people who praise God. What God is doing is not just saving people from their sins, but he's drawing together a great congregation of worshippers. So as we're saved... We're brought into that that huge gathering of people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation whose calling is to ascribe glory to the Lord. He didn't save us just to go back to what we were doing before. He saves us to glorify him. Because that, I think, is the big picture. That's what's going on in the scriptures. More glory to God. More glory to God. And the more people who are saved, that's the more voices singing the more people who can't get the name of Jesus off their lips, the more people who want to tell others, the more people who will be there on the last day. Uh, It's all about him and bringing glory to his holy name. This is, I think, really important. I think this is, as I say, just... uh, in some ways a small but a critical recorrection correction to our thinking. Where do we 
see ourselves in God's economy. Is it that God lives for us? Well, remarkably in Jesus is a level at which that's true. But it's primarily that we live for him and we're redeemed to be his people. The reason that God closed Israel in against the sea, the reason he hardened Pharaoh's hearts, the reason he made the Egyptians go after them was to bring glory to his name. And so here's the question. I think once we've understood that, the question is, do we do it? Are our lives about bringing glory to God? Is that what we do? Is that who we are? Is that how we live? Is my life all about saying, I'm going to live for the greater glory of God? If you're a Christian believer, then by definition, you believe in Jesus, you uh, have come to the Father through the Son, you take the gospel as true, you stake your life on it. Uh, and, and that trust and hope you have in the Lord Jesus, that brings glory to God. Uh, particularly when you tell people, particularly when it's on your lips, particularly when others hear you mention that, say that, you're ascribing glory to him. As part of that bringing glory to God, I wonder though, do we do what the uh, Israelites did in verse 31? Do we fear God? That's part of bringing glory to him. I suspect for many of us, uh, we don't fear God in the way we should. Some people might fear God inappropriately, like feel like God still is a big scary guy with a big stick and I'm going to get whacked if I don't stay in line as a believer. That's not the fear of God we're talking about. But at the other end of the spectrum, there are some people who are so casual in their relationship with God, so relaxed, uh, that it's hard to see any reverent awe, any uh, sort of stunned amazement at his overwhelming presence. We see this all the way through the scriptures. When people see God, one of their first responses is they're terrified. And in some ways, that's a good thing, because it shows that we recognise the glory and majesty of God. If we step into just a little bit of theology again, in Christian theology we talk about God being both transcendent and imminent. Transcendent is the God who's great above all things, bigger than you can imagine, uh, more uh, majestic and incredible and amazing. And lots of our uh, Christian songs in recent times have picked up that theme about the God of wonders, you know, all that sort of stuff, beyond our galaxy, whatever it is, that big picture of God. But then the other picture that we get in Christian theology is the imminence of God, which is Emmanuel, God with us. God has come close, seeing God face to face. And there's a whole stream of actually older Christian music uh, that really emphasised this kind of intimate relationship I had with God. The worst of those songs are a bit schmaltzy and people used to mock them and you know, they, so they were like the Jesus is my boyfriend sort of songs. I'm, we're just so close, me and Jesus. But the problem with this is these are not too separate and disconnected things about God but the transcendence and imminence of God go together the transcendence and imminence of God go together so what's amazing is not that Jesus rocks up and he's my buddy and it's all relaxed and cash the amazing thing is the transcendent God of the universe of all creation turns up in our lives and when we meet him we should be overwhelmed and stunned and on our knees 
you know, uh, the Apostle Peter, when he has his moment of realising something of who Jesus was, his response was to fall down and say, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Not uh, Jesus is my buddy. Not God is distant. But the great majestic God is in my life. And that, I think, captures something of the, the, the fear of God understood as a reverence, an awesomeness. And I really encourage you to think about the way that you conceive of your relationship with God. He's not distant, but he's not casual. He's the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth who knows you personally. It's remarkable and it's overwhelming and we should never lose our awe at the majesty of God. So do we fear God? That's a good question. But how else do we glorify him? What else does that look like? Well, I want to say at least this much. You can't glorify God if you don't glorify God. You can't bring glory to God if you don't actively seek to bring glory to God. You can't glorify God by doing nothing to magnify and exalt and lift up his name. So whatever it looks like, it looks like ascribing greatness to him at some level. Just like if your team wins the footy, you might wave a little flag or you might put the jumper on or you might... It looks something like an expression of uh, recognition of his greatness. Uh, I think this is a great um, challenge for us because I think uh, sometimes Christians who are very committed to the scriptures and to learning and studying the Bible and knowing it well uh, sometimes think that what God requires of me is to know stuff. What God wants is to make me into a person who gets it and who thinks right. And that's true. We do need to get it and think right. And we should soak in the scriptures and we should learn them more and more and we should become more deeply familiar with them. But if we are not, as we do that, realising the greatness of God and wanting to ascribe glory to his name, it's all a little bit impotent. It's all a little bit academic. Uh, So there's a challenge for us, I think, because... Uh, for some of us, that doesn't come naturally. And we'll talk about this uh, tomorrow morning a bit more when we look at the songs of uh, Moses and Miriam, uh, the song of Moses uh, in chapter 15. But it's a challenge as well when we think to the story of Israel coming through the Red Sea to actually grasp and accept and even celebrate the fact that so many of the things that happen to us in our lives are not actually about us primarily. They're about bringing glory to God. So many things that God calls us to are about bringing glory to him. Why would I encourage someone else to consider the Christian faith and challenge them to become a follower of Jesus so there can be more people praising God on the last day? Why do I lift my voice to sing loud in church so that more people can hear the greatness of God? Why do I try to live a life that's upright and and moral so people can see that the way that God calls people to live is good? Why would I want to go and become a missionary on the other side of the world? Because I value God's plans for the spread of the fame of Jesus more than whatever else I was thinking of doing. But then... This is true as well when we think about not just the things that God's called us to do, but the situations that God puts us in. Israel were backed up against the Red Sea. 
it was a dangerous situation. Uh, it was potentially um, catastrophic, except for the fact that they were called to trust God and to watch as he brought glory to his name. Uh, what about when we are in hard situations in life? Is that our first thought? Do we think, this tough situation I'm in, although I may not understand it fully and I might not know everything that's going on here, I wonder if part of it is to bring glory to God. I wonder if part of it is for me to respond in a way that brings glory to God. You know the book of Job? In Job, uh, Satan is addressing God in the courts of heaven and suggests that Job is only faithful because his life goes well and God allows Satan to test Job. And Job passes the test really because he refuses to curse God despite hard situations. And this actually brings more glory to God than Job being faithful when things are fine. It's kind of easy at some level to be a fair weather follower of Jesus. You know, So long as I've got my white picket fence and my two and a half kids and my dog and my swimming pool, yeah, I think Jesus is great. What about when that's all taken away? What about like Job when my family's decimated? What about when I'm sick and dying? Will I continue to praise God? Because if you trust God in that situation, goodness me, that sends a message to the world. That brings glory to him. That says there's something that this God offers that's more than the world can give. We don't always know what the wholeness of why God does things, but I think part of the reason why God puts us in tough situations is that we'll hope in eternity and we'll bring glory to him as we faithfully persevere. Why does God allow Christians to be persecuted in countries where just carrying the name of Jesus can cost you your life? I don't know the whole answer, but part of it is that they can glorify him as the name of Jesus is on their lips even to death. Why did God let my friend who I used to work with for many years who has uh, four kids have a motorbike accident and become a quadriplegic? I don't really know the whole answer to that. But I tell you what, five years on, the prayer updates I get from their family scream out, these people are so committed to Jesus and so confident in his salvation, all I can do is be amazed at the power of God in their lives despite this unbelievable tragedy. Why does God allow some young children to get horrible life-threatening sicknesses cancers i don't know the whole answer i know the world's broken and i know a part of it is so that we hope more for the day jesus returns but i know a family now who are seeing their son through extended treatment for leukemia and when i see their updates i think these guys love jesus what an incredible testimony to their conviction and their hope and what an incredible, sure sign that they are invested in the next world and not this world when they are so full of trust in this situation. Why would God let a young woman die in childbirth and leave a man with a baby to be a single dad for several years? I don't know the whole answer to that. But I hope part of what 
comes out of that situation is people see there is the Lord working deep in this person's heart to give them something, a hope beyond the grave, a hope beyond this life, something bigger and greater and better than anything that we could put our trust in for this life. God doesn't always deliver us like he delivered Israel. See, Israel actually went through the sea, came out the other side, they were okay. Uh, Sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes the sea crashes in on us. Sometimes we get swept away. But you see, we're not just looking to get to the other side of the sea and come out on dry land. We're looking to get to the other side. And, you know, this can sound sometimes a bit, you know, this is all this Christian airy-fairy, you know, when you die you go to heaven and all that sort of stuff. Well, I'm sorry, but that is the Christian hope. Uh, The Apostle Paul says, if we have hoped in Christ for this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. The Christian hope is in eternity. We truly believe if we die, we live. Uh, We believe that uh, we may be buried in the waters of baptism, but we'll be raised in the new life with Jesus. And that's real. We know it's real because we've seen Jesus raised from the dead. We know that resurrection happens. We know that those who follow Jesus follow him to new and eternal life. That's where we stake our hope. That's where we put our trust in God. And this really is just, again, another foretaste, a pointer to that Christian hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus. Ultimately, if you find yourself backed up against a raging sea and God parts the way and you get through and the baddies get drowned and you get through the other side, that's great. But 50 years from now, you're still going to die. What matters is what will happen on the other side of that great chasm. And that's where we show our hope and our trust in the Lord Jesus who's taken our judgment for us and who's been raised to new life as the first fruits of the resurrection. And he can do it. And we don't have to do a great deal at all. We trust him and the Lord accomplishes it for us. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the hope we have in the Lord Jesus Christ that is hope which sees us even through death. We thank you so much that our lives are about bringing glory to you no matter what the cost. And Father, we would happily be spent and given if more praise would go to your name. Uh, Father, we don't understand all your ways And uh, so many times we read the scriptures and we think there must have been a simpler way to do that. Um, But we know that your plans are true, your purposes are great. And we trust, Father, that the end of all things uh, will unfold uh, exactly as the scriptures tell us. That we will uh, join with those many people who've passed from death to life. And we will be part of that great congregation singing praises to you and glorifying you for all eternity, which is the purpose of our lives, the purpose of this creation. Amen.